Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Is it a good thing to be optimistic? Is it, or are you only setting yourself up for discouragement. What do you think? Good to be optimistic or is it better to be very pessimistic and say, nope, no way, that's going to go wrong. So then so then, if it goes right, you're pleasantly surprised. And if it goes wrong, you're like, well, I, I thought it was all going to go wrong. What, what, what do you think? What, what, which way should I look at things? The reason I'm asking, if you look at the description of this live broadcast, it says we conclude our study of the book of Obadiah. Is that too optimistic? Because I, I, is it possible for me to, to conclude the study in this episode? I don't know. Welcome, everyone. Yes, this is the Theology Central podcast. It is now Sunday, January the 16th, 2022, 2.32 p.m. Central Time. And I'm coming to you live once again from the empty sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church located right here. In the middle of nowhere, Texas. Yes, that's where I am, where it is currently 61 degrees outside. It has finally warmed up back to, to what it should be here in West Texas. I mean, 61 is still a little chilly for, for those of us who live in Texas. I know we're, we are weak and sensitive, or at least maybe I should just speak for myself and not the entire state of Texas. But, but I, it, we're here. I, I got here this morning at what, around 8 a.m., did four live broadcasts went home, got something to eat, and now I am back to try to bring last week's Bible study exercise to a dramatic conclusion. I, I never know how dramatic it will be, but hopefully at least a beneficial conclusion. Now, this morning, I said the same thing. I said the same, hey, we're going to try to bring this to a beneficial conclusion. And here I am now this afternoon saying, hey, we're going to try to bring this to a dramatic conclusion. The only thing that has changed is my description of the conclusion, but it's still probably too overly optimistic. Here's what's going on. If, if for some reason you missed the last two live broadcasts, we are trying to conclude our study of the book of Obadiah by doing something I thought would be very interesting, listening to Dr. J. Vernon McGee's teaching on the book of Obadiah. His ministry uh, through the Bible ministry gave me permission. I can use their content any way that I want. I can just play it for you, or obviously I can I can do this discussion uh, with it and 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 try to try to critique it and, and analyze it and use it for our spiritual edification. Uh, so we are grateful and appreciative of Through the Bible uh, allowing us to do this. But I, I hope that you uh, have found it to be interesting. I thought it would just be a, I mean, after all the work we've done all week, I thought it would be a kind of a change of pace. Remember, one of the great things about the Bible study exercises is I try to, a, a different approach every week. We try different things so that it's never the same. I, I like it to be different every week. Like, okay, a new week of Bible study. What are we going to do this week? How are we going to approach it this week? And so, so I think that makes it interesting. Hopefully it makes it, um, it, it creates a situation where you look forward to every new week of Bible study. Now, I know what you're saying. It's Sunday. You need to be starting a new week of Bible study. I know. So we have to conclude this one here. So we've been listening to Dr. J. Vernon McGee's teaching, and we're going to jump right back in. Um, we're at the 20, we'll get a, I moved it back to around the 30 minute mark. So we got about 30 minutes and 10 seconds of audio to work through. The, my fear is 
when we get closer to the end of this, I don't know exactly how he's going to handle. Remember, he broke up the book of Obadiah into two parts. Basically, uh, judgment on Edom and then restoration of Israel. And the restoration of Israel is what I'm very interested in to see what he's going to do, how he's going to handle this. So we're just going to, uh, we're going to just kind of back this up a little bit and see what's going and, and try to see where he's going to go with this. Obadiah, not chapters, but Obadiah starting in verse 10, J. Vernon McGee, his approach was, Dr. J. Vernon McGee, his approach was to say verse 10 and following really are, are the results of Edom's pride. Edom has been, remember, Obadiah is a book offering judgment and words of judgment against Edom. Edom is obviously connected with Esau, okay, Israel with Jacob. Okay, he, he's, we've talked about that all week. Uh, but he's, he's, what he has done here is like, okay, pride is really their big sin. And pride is an attitude that leads to actions. And the actions that flow from pride are found starting in verse 10. For thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee and thou shall be cut off forever. It says, Dr. J. Vernon McGee says, pride leads to violence. Okay, then verse 11 and the day that thou stoodest on the other side and the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces and for, foreign, foreigners entered into his gates and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even thou was asked one of them. Edom watched uh, Judah be basically taken into captivity and they did nothing. They just sat by and watched. Even though Dr. J. Vernon McGee did not outline it this way, I will say, Pride causes violence and pride uh, destroys any compassion for anyone else. Pride is all about you. So they sat there with no concern and didn't care about what was happening to Judah. Verse 12, but thou shouldest not have looked on the day of thy brother in the day that thou becometh a stranger. Neither shouldest thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah and the day of their destruction. Neither should thou have spoken proudly in the day of distress. They rejoiced in seeing Judah, their enemy, suffer. They rejoiced. And pride will make us rejoice in other people's misfortune. It will cause us to rejoice in other people's suffering. That's something else that pride will do. All right, then he's down to verse uh, 13. Thou shouldest not have entered into the gate of my people and the day of their calamity. Yeah, thou shouldest not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Once Judah is taken by the Babylonians, the Edomites, Edom came in and took everything. They stole everything. So pride will lead to being a thief. Pride will lead to stealing. Okay, so that he is he is outlining what he believes are the sins that, that flowed from pride. Kind of an interesting approach. I never thought of approaching it that way. So uh, that's one of the reasons we like listening to other teaching as well is to hear different approaches. So that kind of gets us set up to where we have been. Now we're just going to watch. I, I use this illustration all the time. Just going to walk to the edge of the pool and jump in. Uh, there's no easy way to kind of just ease into it. It will be a little abrupt at first, but hopefully it'll all make sense as we move forward. So here we go. Now, pride will lead a man to do some terrible things. One of the things is stealing. 
One of the things is dishonesty in business. Many a man, in order to keep up a front in his business, will resort to dishonest method. Many a man to win a woman to become his wife will use dishonest methods. Many a man to keep up with the fellows at the club, he will resort to dishonest methods. And today our society, our contemporary society, is honeycombed with dishonesty with people trying to keep up with the Joneses. What is the problem? Well, the problem, the root problem is pride. And this proud man is trying to live his life apart from God. And when he does that, it leads to this sort of thing. May I say to you, the Bible is still the best book on psychology. It's the best book to get down at the root of the problem that is in the human heart, that which today is destroying our society. And again, will you forgive me for saying this? We have so many little courses in our churches, and the world today puts them on. Today, you can go anywhere and take a course in most anything. You can go and spend two or three weeks. You can learn this. You can learn this psychological approach, actually how to make a forceful speech how to improve yourself in your job, uh, how to become a better neighbor, how to love your wife more, and how to treat your children better and bring them up. And we have all kinds of little gimmicks given today. Who would ever have thought that in the prophecy of Obadiah that you have the root cause that's at the very basis of our society today that are leading both men and women to commit terrible deeds. Why? Because the root problem is pride. They're trying to live without God today, and attempting to live without God, it leads them into dishonest actions. It leads them to get with the wrong crowd. It'll lead them to do these things that they should not be doing, and that will bring their destruction. In fact, these actions are self-destructive. Now, notice the fifth one here. Neither, and that's verse 14, neither shouldst thou have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. Neither shouldst thou have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of distress. Now, to me, this is the lowest thing that they did. This is the worst thing that they committed. This is where they reveal they're no more than an animal and that it is the survival of the fittest, by the way. And it's the revelation of the bloody tooth. What is it? They became a traitor. They betrayed their brother. They stood at the crossroads. And when Nebuchadnezzar came, destroyed Jerusalem... And we know that Israel began to scatter, and the Babylonians would chase them. And the Edomites, naturally living down in a country where people could hide, many of the Israelites went down there. And the Edomites says, he's right over yonder in that cave. Oh, did I see a group come by here of Israelites fleeing? Yes. 
They went right through that canyon there. And I think you'll find them holed up in that canyon. They betrayed their brother. May I say to you, this is the lowest that they came to. This is the case of dog eat dog. And this is something that a businessman right here in Los Angeles said this to me. He says, business today is dog eat dog. (laughs) We've come to that. Living without God today, proud, and want to make a name for ourselves, want to make money, want to be a success. What's back of that? Pride. What is pride? That's that attitude of the life to live without God. And it leads men to betray other men. How many men in business today will betray another man in order to get his job? How many will pretend to be a friend when at the time he's an enemy? How many in government today, and believe me, we've had enough of that, that will betray? And I want to tell you that it's sickening when we look at our society today. And friends, I hate to say it, but it's in the church. I happen to know this. I was a pastor for over 40 years, and I know this. And during most of my pastorate, I had a staff. And during over half of that period, I had a large staff. And during that period, I had some very wonderful men, faithful men, men I could depend on, men I could rest on. But I learned this. I learned it to my sorrow, and it took me a long time to learn it, that when I had a member of the staff who was a proud young man, he would bear watching because a proud young man that's trying to get on in the world, he's willing to go up the ladder of success even if he has to step on the fingers of those that are below him. And I've seen that happen on several occasions. You remember Shakespeare put it like this. Shakespeare had Julius Caesar say it. I don't think Julius Caesar ever thought of it. He may have, but Shakespeare thought of it. He has Julius Caesar say, I don't like this man. He is lean and hungry looking. And he says, I want men that are fat around me. Well, I don't think he's talking so much about being fat physically or being skinny physically. I think he's talking about that lean, hungry look of the proud man who wants to get on in the world. Now, this is not honest ambition. This is an ambition of a godless man living without God, not depending on God, and he's going to do it by himself. And in doing it by himself, he's willing to use any method because the end justifies the means. That's the way that he's living, and I've seen that in my ministry The head of the Church of England was speaking to the bishops many years ago, and he made this statement, and it has a double meaning. He says, every bishop has a crook on his staff. What he primarily was talking about, the staff of a shepherd, and that he is to use that crook in correction of the sheep. But he also had another meaning that each one of these bishops had a staff. And he could be sure of one thing, that even the church 
There'd be a crook in there somewhere. There would be a disloyal follower, one that would put a knife in your back. And I found that true. I found out that even among young ministers that every now and then I'd get one and he'd be willing in order that he might advance. He'd be willing to even put a knife in my back. And though you'd brought him in and tried to help him, he'd be willing to put a knife in your back. Do you see now why God says he hates pride? It leads men really to act like animals. The horrible truth is that when a man attempts to live without God, he's lower than the animals. Therefore, Obadiah is God's devastating answer to evolution. What consummate conceit of a man who is living apart from God to think that he's evolved from an animal when he's living like an animal. And there are multiplied numbers of people who live like animals in our day. They go around with the conceited boast, I have come from an animal. I'm evolved. And look at me today. God says, in effect, where have you been? Where really do you think you've come from? I created you in my image, and you fell. You fell so low that you're below the animal world. May I say, God says, I hate that. And I don't apologize for God because he never asked me to apologize for him at all. Now, if you want to see the final issue of... Okay, now before we move on, uh, Dr. J. Vernon McGee really, really went after pride in everything that we've listened to today. It's been convicting I hope you've given it much thought and meditation. I just want to remind us. And again, I would have made this the key verse if I didn't want to choose a key verse that really summarizes the whole book. But for your own practical application and meditation, I really want you to write this phrase down. I want you to put it on your refrigerator. I want you to put it ever Put it in a, a note on your phone and set a reminder so that it will bring it up every single day so that you will look at it, all right? I want, I'm Obadiah verse uh, four or verse three. Obadiah verse three. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. I really want you to think about how pride has deceived you, is deceiving you, and what you can do to prevent it from deceiving you in the future. How does pride deceive you? Really think about pride and its deceptive nature because it deceives you. You're the one who is deceived by it. And if we can't detect it, then we will continue to be deceived by it. If we can't detect it, we may stay in a state of being deceived by pride. We want to eliminate pride because pride deceives us. So I really want you to think about the deceptive nature of pride. Talk about it, think about it, meditate on it. And we're really going to make that kind of a, a key theme for the month of January is just this concept of the deceitful nature of pride. Uh, we're going to find other ways to talk about it. We're not going to just allow this very powerful concept to just be thrown away. Dr. J. Vernon McGee has done a great job in describing how pride was so destructive for Edom. 
And I think we need to understand how it's destructive for you, for me, for your family, for your church, my church, and, and for, well, just society in general. All right, let's continue. Edom and Israel, you will have to come to the time of Christ. And you remember Herod? Herod was what? An Edomite. He was in the line of Esau. And you remember that they brought the Lord Jesus' word one day, said, Herod's looking for you to kill you. He said, go tell that fox. Fox? Yes. Go, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and I do cures today and tomorrow and the third day I shall be finished. May I say to you, the Lord Jesus said, I have nothing to do with him. And when he was finally brought before him, he wouldn't even open his mouth before Herod. And there they stand, Jesus and Herod, the final issue of Jacob and Esau. Why didn't our Lord speak to him? Because our Lord doesn't speak fox language. He doesn't talk like an animal. And therefore, you have the final issue today. This is the reason that God hates that thing that leads men away from God. Now we have come in this little book of Obadiah down to verse 15. There actually are not but 21 verses in the entire book, by the way. And that means that there are actually not very many verses at all in the book. It is, as we've indicated, the briefest book in the Old Testament. Now, we've seen that this is the judgment of Edom, destruction of the nation in the first 16 verses here. And we saw in the first nine verses God's charge against Edom. The charge against Edom was pride of heart, an attitude of life that declared its ability to live without God. And God says he hates that. Then the crime of Edom in verses 10 to 14, because an attitude of life leads to actions and you have a catalog of actions from verses 10 through 14, and we looked at those last time. Now we come today first to see the catastrophe that came to Edom in verses 15 and 16. Now, will you note this? Because this, I think, is a rather important section and just a little difficult. It says, for the day of the Lord is upon all nations. Now, this looks forward to the day of the Lord. And again, this is, as we have attempted to show from the Word of God, is a technical expression that covers a period of time beginning with the great tribulation period. We are living today in the day of grace or the day of Christ. Okay, so he connects the day of the Lord with the great tribulation, all right? So that that puts this, so that in verse 15, we jump to the future. It's about Edom, 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 and all of that destruction and judgment upon Edom, literal Edom, literal judgment, literal Nebuchadnezzar coming in, literal destruction, all, everything there is literal, literal, literal. Now this day of the Lord is looking to a future time where God is going to judge the nations 
and he, he connects it with the great tribulation. We have thrown into this discussion, Matthew 25 and the judgment on the nations. And how does all of that fit in? We've really, we've thrown in a lot of concepts that we have not been able to completely unpack, but at least here in the day of the Lord, he is connecting with that. Now, just make sure you understand some people don't believe in a tribul- tribulation period. They don't believe in that. They believe that basically we're, we're in the millennial kingdom now, that Satan is bound now and we're in the millennial kingdom. Um, and then just Christ will come back. There's not going to be like a seven-year tribulation and a thousand-year reign. So that then causes them to go very allegorical in some of these sections. And that's where, well, we call into question the hermeneutic. All right, let, let's continue. And the emphasis today is where the Holy Spirit takes the things of Christ and shows them unto us. Now, after the church is removed, the day of the Lord begins. He begins to move in judgment. God's day begins with the night, always, the evening and the morning with the first day, the second day, and so on. So that it begins with the darkness and the judgment of the great tribulation period. And then finally, the Son of Righteousness rises with healing in his wings. And that's the coming of the Lord Jesus to the earth to establish his kingdom here upon the earth. And at that time, there will be certain nations that are going to enter into the kingdom. You remember in the Olivet Discourse that we're told all nations will be gathered before him. Now, very frankly... I want to say that it's not quite clear to me whether these ancient nations of the past that have long since disappeared, whether they will be raised for a judgment as a nation at that time, or will it be at the judgment of the great white throne? Now, very frankly, I find that commentators... I have one book before me, and it's a very fine book. And it says in one place that Edom is to be utterly destroyed. And then again, he says that it will again be raised up in the last days of world history. And it speaks of Edom. Well, I believe that Edom will become a nation. And this is now my private viewpoint, my private interpretation, and I'm sure you've discovered by now that anything that I go out on a limb on, you better not go out with me because it may break off. But I'm of the opinion that when he mentions here, the day of the Lord is near upon all nations, that it means that Edom will become a nation during the end times. They have now disappeared as a nation. Well, somebody said All right, now, I, I just want you to see when it says, uh, for the day of the Lord is near upon all nations, and as thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. I understand where, well, okay, it's been talking about Edom, so this has to include Edom. Or is it just, does it just jump and basically saying, hey, that as Edom was destroyed, as Edom faced destruction and judgment, that same judgment is going to come upon all the heathen, upon all the nations. So Edom just serves as an example of what's going to happen, or do you have to include Edom? You, you could go, put it this way, I know this, the destruction that comes upon Edom clearly is promised to come upon other nations as well. That, that I think we can be dogmatic about. 
says, could that happen? Well, it sure happened to the nation Israel. For 2,500 years, they were not a nation. And now they've become a nation. They've had problems, but they've become a nation. Now, that's a very good point. Just because like, well, well, wait a minute. If you put that in the future, well, the nation doesn't exist anymore. So how can they show back up in the future? That doesn't make any sense. So we have to make it allegorical. No, you don't. Israel didn't exist for over 2,000 years, right? So, well, if they didn't exist for that long and all of a sudden they come back into existence, well, then there, there you are. They're back into existence. So God can bring a nation back. Just because a nation doesn't exist now doesn't mean you have to change your interpretation because it seems to talk about it, that nation in the future and then turn it into an allegorical, spiritualize it. No, just because it doesn't exist now doesn't mean it can't exist again in the future. Just saying that this, and we have Israel as, as an actual historical example. Boom, 70 AD, they're gone. 1948, there they are again. So however, however many years that is, I'm horrible at numbers, but you get the idea. All right, here we go. Now, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. And how are you going to interpret all the nations? Well, I interpret it as meaning all the nations. And that the day of the Lord is the day that many of these ancient nations are going to come back into existence again. I think that is something that the Word of God, I believe, makes rather clear to us. And you see, a nation is responsible to God and the people of a nation. Now, many of you who've been with us from the beginning, you will recall that when we were in the book of Deuteronomy, in the 21st chapter there, God gave a very unusual law. He said that when a man has been found slain out on the highway, then you are to measure what city is closest to that slain man. And that city is responsible for the man. They are to take over the case, attempt to find out who did it. In other words, that city is responsible. Now, I think that is a great principle that God has put down, that you and I today as Christians... We can talk about our citizenship is in heaven and the head of the church is there, that's true. But the feet of the church is right down here where we live today. And we do have a responsibility as a citizen of the nation that we are members of. And we should exert that influence for God as much as we possibly can. And I don't mean to say by that that the Christian is to jump into politics but I am of the opinion that God could use a great many more real born-again Christians in politics today. Someone has said it's become so dirty that no Christian could get involved in it. Well, I think you could. I believe that you could do that if a man like Lot could get involved in the politics of Sodom, which he did. He was a judge sitting in the gate. I'm of the opinion that real born-again Christian who's willing to stand on his two feet and be counted could be used to God today in government. And therefore, nations are responsible to God. Now, this doesn't... 
I don't, I don't know how good an example of Lot is. Hey, Lot, 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 even even good old Lot became a judge and a and a, basically got involved in politics and an ungodly nation. I mean, that's a good example. Yeah, and that that wonderful politician uh, offered up his daughters to the men of the city to do whatever they want to. So I really don't know if that's such a great example. But okay, all right, let's continue mean that he's judging nations on the basis of whether they accept or reject Christ as a nation, because there's never been a nation yet that has accepted Christ wholeheartedly. I think it's always been a mistake to speak of certain nations as being Christian nations. It's quite true that the church has had a great influence on a nation like England and on our nation today. But there never was a time when it could be said that either one of these nations were Christian nations, and certainly both are very far from God today. Amen to that. It's impossible to say a nation is a Christian nation because they've never truly been a Christian nation. There have been Christians in them. Christian Christianity has had its influence, but you can see the ungodliness and the corruption and the anti-Christian philosophies and ideals permeating through almost every nation to some way, shape, or form. So the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. And I believe that this nation that God destroyed, they're out of business today. I mean, that prophecy has been literally fulfilled. The question is, are they going to come back during the day of the Lord? I think so. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee, thy reward will return upon thine own head. Now, actually, what happened to this nation was this. Edom, as we have indicated in this study, was finally captured by Babylon. They did it by getting spies on the inside of that very impregnable fortress city. And they were taken about the same time that Israel was taken. And actually... In the end time, we are going to find that Edom will again be on the scene in the end times. And there are certain references to that. And I'm not going to turn to them today, but Isaiah 63, 1 and 6, for instance, which definitely refers to the future. That is a reference to it, that they will be around. And they were, of course, destroyed by Babylon, but the Maccabees also subjugated them. And then finally, the Romans came, and when they destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D., why, at that time, Edom disappeared from the world scene as a nation and has not been heard of since then. But they are to be brought back again. And we find that by the time, though, you get to the millennium, it looks as if they have not yet made the world scene, but they will be again on the scene of world history. Now, let me read on from there. As you can see, this is a debatable point, and I would not care to debate it or argue it with anyone because it is one of the many points that are in the Scripture that we can't be too clear on because after all, what is the importance of this to you and me today? 
if I find out that Edom is going to be around during the millennium, while I'll be happy if they're not around, I'm still going to be happy because I know God is working this out according to his own plan and purpose. Now will you notice, he says here, verse 16, "...for as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yea, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been." In other words, God says that as you have done, it's going to be done to you. You'll be rewarded the same way. This is called today poetic justice. This is something that seems to work out in human history today. Lex talionis, I think, is the law of retaliation. The Lord Jesus put it like this, as you judge, so shall you be judged. And whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. So that what you have here could be called poetic justice. The way this nation acted is the way that this nation is to be judged. And I very frankly shudder for the fact that we were the first nation that dropped an atom bomb and that we have been a warlike nation. I don't think that God lets any nation get by with it. The history of all nations is that as they've dealt it out, that's the way it's come back to them. And that is something that has worked out in the history of the world. Now, I want to move down to the last major division, actually, of the book. And it's only a few verses, and it concerns the nation Israel. And as Edom was destruction, Israel is restoration. Now, in verse 17, we have the condition of Israel. In verse 18, we have the calling of Israel. And then in verses 19 through 21, we have the consummation of all things. In other words, this little nation and this little book that concerns that little nation, how does it fit in to the program of Almighty God? And everything fits into the program of Almighty God. Every individual, I don't care who you are today, the interesting thing is God thought of you or you wouldn't be around, friends. You were in the mind of God. The great question is, are you going to get in step with him? Are you going to move into eternity with him or into eternity against him? Because his plan and program will be carried out. Now, notice how this fits in here. And you have now the nation Israel brought before us and the role that they are to play in the future. Although God judged them, they were not to be destroyed as a nation. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance. In other words, salvation is to be offered there for the world. And that's where it's offered to you and me today. The Lord Jesus came and died on Golgotha for you and me today. Now he's coming back to this earth. And I take it that although his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives, he'll be coming into Jerusalem again. And he will be, I think, ruling on top of Mount Zion. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance. And there shall be holiness. And there's no holiness there today. I've been on top 
top of Mount Zion a half a dozen times, friend, and I never found any holiness there. They're burning candles all over the place there. They're just as far from God there as they are over in the Arab section, where the Arabs are in the old city. There's no holiness there. There shall be holiness when the Lord Jesus reigns. And the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. Now, I like that expression. They are not possessing their possessions today. They are in the land, it's true. They have a nation. That's all true. They've returned to the land, but they haven't returned to God. And as a result, they do not possess their possessions. There's a lot of difference in having a possession and then possessing your possession. Now, verse 18. And here you have the calling of Israel. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble, and they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord hath spoken it. Now, there will be an ultimate final judgment of Esau. I take it that this is a kingdom that will not enter into the eternal kingdoms of this earth that will become the kingdoms of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What is it that keeps them from being there? Well, pride of heart. That added... I'm going to argue what keeps them from there is God's electing. He elected Israel. For Jacob I have loved... Esau I have hated, and this was decided before the boys were born, before they had done any good thing, so that the purpose of God, in fact, let me just read Romans chapter 9. It's just amazing that he has not mentioned Romans 9 and this entire teaching. It's just, it's like, it's just weird how Christians are almost scared of Romans 9. Let me read it to you one more time. Romans chapter 9. For the children, being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau have I hated. That that is God's electing purpose. what, What happens to Israel, what happens to Edom, Jacob and Esau, this plays out throughout all of history, demonstrating God's sovereign purpose. That, that, that is how, why this plays out the way it does. All right. Chewed of a life that declares its ability to live without God. And friends, if that's your decision to live without God, that's what you're going to do, live without him. Now will you notice, verse 19, and they of the Negev, shall possess the mount of Esau. And they are the Shephelah, the Philistines. And they shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. Gilead is on the east bank of the Jordan River. And in other words, for the first time, they will occupy all the land that God vouchsafed to them. You see, he promised to Abraham a land that contains about 300,000 square miles. Even in their zenith, they only occupied 30,000 square miles. Now, will you notice, 
and the captives of his host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites, even unto Zarephath. And Zarephath is way up between Tyre and Sidon in Lebanon. And the captives of Jerusalem, which is in Shepharad, shall possess the cities of the Negev. And the Negev is the southern part, actually the Sinaitic Peninsula. And now I'm reading the last verse, and here you have the consummation of all things in this section, friends. And saviors, that is deliverers, shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. In other words, God is moving forward today undeviatingly, unhesitatingly, toward the accomplishment of his purpose, that is, of putting his king on Mount Zion. And he'll turn and turn and overturn, as he says, and he will do that until he comes whose right it is to rule. Now, today, the Lord Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. He's not the king today, but he is the Savior. And men and women are walking through life with their heads down like animals. You see, only man looks up. Animals look down. There's only one who can lift them. Evolution has not lifted mankind one inch. Look at our world that has been schooled in this godless philosophy. The deadly poison of godless materialism and humanism will bring upon us the judgment of God. God says, Though you be lifted up, little man, I'll bring you down. But the Lord Jesus said, If I be lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men unto him. May we look to him today and be saved. And there you have the complete teaching of Dr. J. Vernon McGee on the book of Obadiah. Now, I thought it was fascinating that basically God promised them a land, what, 300,000 square miles, but at no t- Israel never possessed more than, say, 30,000 square miles of that land. Now, this is where, this is where hermeneutics come into play because some people say, well, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. They never inherited the land. They're never going to inherit the land. That, that promise now about land and them getting the land and that they now take possession of what they possessed, they finally have it. That doesn't refer to Israel anymore. That refers to the church, and that's a spiritual possession. It's not actual land. Now, just think about that. When you start doing that kind of weird thing to the text, then why is it that Edom was a real nation that was really destroyed? It's like part of the prophecy is literal. The other part isn't. It just makes no sense. But I want to just take the last few minutes here as we conclude this week's, last week's Bible study exercise by reading from a commentary about the restoration of Israel. All right, listen carefully. This is all based off Obadiah 1, and and not an actual chapter, but I'll say verse 17 to 21, or if you want to say chapter 1, 17 through 21. Here we go. Israel will be delivered. The deliverance shall come by the return of Jesus Christ. And they make a reference to Obadiah 17. For upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance and there shall be holiness and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. Well, they've never been truly delivered and they've never possessed their possessions. So it has to be 
future. They also reference there Zechariah 14, 1 through 7, which we won't have time to look at right now. Now, let's continue what they have to say here. We must note that the deliverance is not for all Israelites in the flesh. It is for those who repent and receive the Lord's Christ. The repentance of Israel is described in Zechariah 12, 9 through 14. Only one third of Israel will be saved, Zechariah 13, 8 through 9. Now, the bottom line is, is that means Israel will be saved because they repent and they believe. We can get into the one third and how that works versus what Romans says, all Israel will be saved, all Israel referencing what part of Israel. Okay, we, we could get into a whole discussion about that. All right, but the point is, there's coming some kind of deliverance, some kind of salvation for Israel. However you want to break it down, Israel is going to be saved in some ways. Israel's enemies will be defeated, Obadiah verse 18. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau for stubble and they shall kindle in them and devour them and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau for the Lord hath spoken it. All right, Um, let me see here, okay. Uh, Israel's enemies will be defeated. Again, Edom is used as an example of what will happen to all of Israel's enemies who are actually God's enemies. They will be burned up and devoured and defeated. And it says, you can see Zechariah 12 and Malachi 4. The house of Esau will cease to exist. The seed of the wicked who hate God will be cut off in Christ's kingdom. The age-old rebellion will be put down. Christ will will rule the nations with a rod of iron. This sounds to me a lot like either Matthew 25, the judgment of the nations, or Revelation chapter 19, going into the establishment of the kingdom. Israel will possess the land promised by God, Obadiah 1, 19 through 20. Let me read it. And they of the south shall possess the Mount of Esau, and they of the plain, the Philistines, and they shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the captivity of this host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites, even unto Zarephath, and the captivity of Jerusalem, which is Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the south. They're going to possess everything. All the land that was promised to them, they're finally going to possess it. That has never happened. So that would have to be future unless you start spiritualizing it. And if you're going to spiritualize that, then why is the judgment upon Edom literal? All right. Uh, Let's see here. So Israel will possess the land by God, and uh, promised by God, Obadiah 1, 19 and 20, uh, Numbers 24, 18, Isaiah 11, 14. I apologize. I had to sneeze and I wanted to make sure that I was done sneezing before I turned the microphone on. I apologize. So let's read this again. Israel will possess the land promised by God, Obadiah 1, 19 through 20. Uh, they say also see Numbers 24, 18, Isaiah eleven fourteen, Amos 9, 11 through 12. They will possess the land of Edom south of the Dead Sea. They will possess the plain of the Philistines along the Mediterranean coast. They will possess Ephraim and Samaria, which is called the West Bank today. They will possess Gilead, which is the territory of Jordan today. They will possess the land of the Canaanites under Zarephath, which was in the region of Sidon. 1 Kings 17, 9. Canaan's descendants occupied the land of Canaan from Sidon in the north to Gaza and the Sinai Peninsula in the south. Jews will come from exile and uh, Sheprod to possess the cities of the south, 
Uh, the exact locations of Sheprod is not known. It could be Spain or Sardis. God promised Abram the land from Egypt to the Euphrates, Genesis 15, 18, 18 through 21. And Amos 9:15, the land is called their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord. And just remember, he promised actual land. I can't stand reading a commentary. It's like, well, no, 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 no. It's not actual land. That means the church is going to get, they're going to possess power and influence and the gospel will spread all throughout the world. That is not what was promised. Land was promised. Saviors on Mount Zion will, will judge Esau. That's uh, Obadiah verse 21. God's people will rule the nations. Compare Psalm 45, 16, 47, 9, 122, 5. Micah 5, 7 through 8, Revelation 2, 26 through 27. Nations that were formerly ruled by self-serving pagans who hated God's law will be ruled by Christ-centered governors who love the truth and righteousness. Converted Jews will rule as judges among the nations and will be a blessing to the people as a dew from the Lord as the showers upon the grass. Micah 5, 7. No one will stop them because they will exercise the authority that will flow from Christ's throne in Jerusalem. They will be as a young lion among the flock of the sheep, Micah 5, 8. The nations will no more be able to resist Christ's representatives than sheep can resist a lion. The Lord's judges will have the authority to do whatever is necessary to bring society into conformity to God's will. The kingdom shall be the Lord's, Obadiah uh, verse 21, and that day will be fulfilled the wonderful words. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. And in that day shall there be one Lord and his name one. Zechariah 14, 9. And the kingdoms of the world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Revelation eleven fifteen. That's the restoration of Israel. Now, are there some questions in exactly how that plays out? Absolutely. But it seems to be, hey, uh, there's going to be Israel set aside because of their spiritual blindness and chastisements placed upon them. The Gentiles come in and then uh, at the time the Gentiles is fulfilled, God will then will bring about and fulfill all the promises made to Israel. And that seems to be land and ruling and reigning and Christ back in Jerusalem. That's the only way for it to make any sense unless you spiritualize it. And if you spiritualize it, then please understand you've set up a hermeneutic where people can go back and start spiritualizing everything, all the other prophecies. Well, Christ didn't have to necessarily be, you know, born of a literal virgin. It could have just been figurative. And he didn't have to, and, and this didn't have to happen, and that didn't have to happen. And well, the next thing you know, you've destroyed the entire Bible. If if the prophecies are typically fulfilled in a literal way, then future prof, or prophecies that haven't been fulfilled literally still would need a literal fulfillment. That is the book of Obadiah. Now, I know we went through a lot of that quickly, but, and I got other books here that talk about the restoration of Israel, but that's the best we can do considering it's now Sunday afternoon, 3.26 p.m. We have been working on it all week, and uh, I think we've done about as much as we can. I wish... In some ways, I wish Dr. J. Vernon McGee would have spent more time with that than the application, but the application was really good about pride, and hopefully we will spend some time thinking and meditating on that. All right, I'm going to stop right there. You can email me any of your thoughts about the Bible study this week. 
newsif at yahoo.com, or last week, I should say, newsif at yahoo.com. I will stop, take a break. We'll come back and introduce a brand new week of Bible study coming up in about 10 minutes. So if you're listening live, stick around. If not, well, just, well, look at the next podcast in your podcast feed. It'll be there. Well, it's probably already there. Okay. All right. So everyone have a a great day and God bless.